Blog Talk Radio. today. Bernie Sanders uh, was, of course, asked a smear question at his CNN town hall. I'll be diving into that up front here. I think this is probably the most important story of the past, you know, three or four days. I don't even know how long ago the CNN town hall was, probably two or three days ago. But um, yeah, super important story. We're going to talk about that. I got a couple stories from um, Bernie's town hall. I got one from Warren's town hall. I got one from Booty Judge. Um, I also have probably one of the saddest Democratic, um, candidates for 2020 is Eric Swalwell, and I have a story about him that I found hilarious, but also incredibly sad. Uh, Bet on My Stork is back in the news. He's done doing the, he's done doing the progressive tap dance. He basically, uh, made it crystal clear that he's now pivoting from feigning uh, being anti-establishment to embracing the establishment. And the moves that he's taken on that front are actually quite bold, where it is like the biggest signal ever. Some uh, former Bernie people have now, been, have now either quit or been fired from his campaign. So that pretty much tells you everything you need to know. Um, and then Josh Rogan uh, from the Washington Post has an amazing story about uh, the U.S. and our goals in Iran – So you don't want to miss any of today's show. Like I said, we got a a jam-packed show and a lot of really interesting stories. And some stuff where, you know, my own audience might say, "Mm, I disagree with you, Kyle. All right, well, fair enough. Let's let's dive into all of it and let's let's figure it out. So we're going to start with Bernie Sanders and um, his... 
his town hall, the biggest moment, which of course got the most headlines. Let's do it. So Bernie Sanders did a CNN town hall, and I don't think it's uh, too out of line here for me to say it was worse than Fox News town hall. <laughs> like the Fox News town hall, I think it was in Pennsylvania in like a factory town. And so uh, the people in the audience were primarily from Pennsylvania, from a factory town. And they had uh, really important questions that were that directly affected their lives. It was about policy. The only times the Fox host interjected was for them to ask stupid questions. But it was the stupid softballs down the center of the plate, you know, um, of like, how are you going to pay for it? <laughs> and stuff like that. And it was just, it was Bernie ran shit. Well, CNN, um, they're the wolf in sheep's clothing. And they did this. This was all young people asking the questions, which originally I thought, well, that'll be great because, you know, Paul show young people are overwhelmingly uh, on the left and they get a lot of their information online and they're much more educated on these topics. No offense to, you know, the older generations, but it was, it was all Harvard students. And Jeff Stein of, of the Washington Post tweeted something I thought was super interesting. Apparently, like, even though young people overwhelmingly went for uh, Bernie Sanders, at Harvard specifically, it was like two to one for Hillary over Bernie in the primary. Now, why is that? Well, there's, uh, you know, there's, I guess, multiple different ways you could look at it, but there's a class analysis there that is probably most important, which is most of the kids are from higher income families uh, if they went to Harvard. And therefore, that kind of, that not by definition turns you against more radical politics, but it certainly influences your worldview, particularly when you're younger. If, uh, if you come from a family with means, you're, you're much more likely to think the status quo is fair and makes sense than if you come from, you know, a background where you're working people who are struggling to pay the bills, who live paycheck to paycheck, you have a, a much uh, different view on these things. And it, generally speaking, of course, there's exceptions, no, no doubt about that. But um, these questions, some of them were just like, I'm co totally cool with tough but fair questions. Uh, if I ever interviewed Bernie, I'd of course bring up like his BDS position, which I don't agree with. Um, but th these were tough, and many of them were just smears. Like the questions were set up in a way where there is no winning. You can't answer it properly because the trick is in the framing of the question. So without further ado, let's get to the biggest issue of the night. He was asked about his position on voting rights for felons. But look at the framing of the question. Then we're going to watch his answer, and then, you know, uh, I'll come back and break it down. And I have, I have a pretty strong critique here. Uh, perhaps my analysis is quite different from other left-wing hosts who seem to overwhelmingly, you know, be siding with Bernie, almost in like a duh kind of way. My analysis is, uh, is quite different. So let's take a look, and then we'll discuss. Sanders, you have said that you believe that people with felony records should be allowed to vote while in prison. Does this mean that you would support enfranchising people like the Boston Marathon bomber, a convicted terrorist and murderer? Do you think that those convicted of sexual assault should have the opportunity to vote for politicians who could have a direct impact on women's rights? Okay, thank you for the question. And 
Uh, and let me just say this. What our campaign is about and what I believe is creating a vibrant democracy. Today, as you may know, we have one of the lowest voter turnouts of any major country on earth. I want to see us have one of the highest voter turnouts. And by the way, what we are seeing is more young people getting involved in the political process, but not enough. And in my view, if young people voted at the same percentage that older people voted in this country, we would transform this nation. But to get to your point, we live in a moment where cowardly Republican governors are trying to suppress the vote. And in fact, right here, as you may know, in New Hampshire, the legislature and the governor are working hard to make it more difficult for young people to vote. And to me, that is an incredibly undemocratic, un-American process. And I say to those people, by the way, if you don't have the guts to participate in free and fair elections, you should get another job and get out of politics. All right? So we got to... So here is... And to answer your question, as it happens in my own state of Vermont, from the very first days of our state's history, what our Constitution says is that everybody can vote. That is true. So people in jail can vote. Now, here is my view. If somebody commits a serious crime, sexual assault, murder, they're going to be punished. They may be in jail for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, their whole lives. That's what happens when you commit a serious crime. But I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. Because once you start chipping away, you say, well, that guy committed a terrible crime. I'm not going to let him vote. Well, that person did that. I'm not going to let that person vote. You're running down a slippery slope. So I believe that people who commit crimes, they pay the price. When they got out of jail, I believe they certainly should have the right to vote. But I do believe that even if they are in jail, they're paying their price to society. But that should not take away their inherent American right to participate in our democracy. Applause for the answer. My follow-up question goes to this being like you're writing an opposition ad against you by saying you think the Boston Marathon bomber should vote not after he pays his debt to society, but while he's in jail. You sure about that? Well, Chris, I think I have written many 30-second opposition ads throughout my life. <laughs> this will be just uh, another one. But I do believe, look, you know, this is what I believe. Do you believe in democracy? Do you believe that every single American 18 years of age or older who's an American citizen has the right to vote? Once you start shipping away at that, believe me, that's what our Republican governors all over this country are doing. They come up with all kinds of excuses why people of color, young people, poor people can't vote. And I will do everything I can to resist it. This is a democracy. We've got to expand that democracy. And I believe every single person does have the right to vote. Okay, now, um, if you're somebody who already um, is inclined to agree with Bernie Sanders, you're already on Team Bernie, you're already a leftist, you might hear that and go, yeah, hell yeah, you go get him, Bernie. Like, I like that. You know, he, he told it like it is, and he's laying out a position that certainly in my lifetime I've never heard uh, a politician make the case for something like this. But... What I want all these people to understand, and it's pretty much all of my left-wing commentator colleagues 
and most of my audience, because I did a poll on this, and I think it was 53% that agreed with Bernie. Um, what you need to understand is there is there are two separate things at play here. One of them is um, what's the answer that appeals to the majority of the American people, and the other thing is like what's the answer that you prefer. Now, on probably over 90% of the issues, those things coincide. So when Bernie goes on and on about uh, Medicare for All and how we need it, when Bernie goes on about a living wage, when Bernie goes on about um, ending our uh, horrific trade deals and having fair trade instead of just free trade, those are all positions, raising taxes on the rich, so on and so forth. Those are all positions that the overwhelming majority of the American people agree with him and you happen to agree with them. As somebody who try, I have to try my hardest to do this too because everybody knows I'm, I'm massively on Team Bernie, but I always have to try my best to be objective here and take out my own bias. And, you know, when I do that and I listen to what he said there, this is an area where it, there's just not alignment between what the majority of the American people believe and what Bernie Sanders is saying. Now, I have numbers to back this up. So uh, according to a Huffington Post YouGov poll from pretty recently, 63% of the public says that individuals who've committed a felony should have their right to vote, but only once they're out of uh, you know, prison and serving their sentence. So they're in favor of restoring felons' voting rights, not necessarily having felons vote even when they're uh, in prison. And only 20% disagree with that. So you know, the people who want, hey, we're going to take away your voting rights when you're in prison, and then also when you're out, we're gonna, you still don't have the right to vote after you've served your debt to society, that's a super unpopular position. So the furthest right-wing position of you commit a crime, you can never vote again, basically. Only 20% of the American people agree with that position. Um, however, however, 24% of the American people think that people in prison for a felony should be able to vote while they're in prison. So basically, basically 75% of the American people disagree with Bernie Sanders here. And you have to understand something, guys. We got, we're, not, we're not playing checkers anymore, okay? Bernie Sanders is the front runner. And since Bernie Sanders is the front runner, those establishment fangs are coming out for him. And I have to say, this was a, a clever, clever, clever move here, because what would you do if Bernie Sanders is the front runner by a mile, and all of your attacks against him, if you're a centrist, if you're an establishment person, all of your attacks against him fall flat, and even make his base even stronger in support of him? and even make regular folks who aren't even necessarily in his base go, I don't think that's quite fair what you're doing to him. How do you take him down in that situation? That's hard. Maybe there's no way to take him down. No, they came up with a brilliant idea. And that brilliant idea is our attacks fall flat on him. Why not effectively make him attack himself by forcing him to focus on and pontificate on the handful of issues, the very few number of issues where the American people actually totally disagree with him, and he's out of the mainstream. So this is why, for example, and the very next question was about this, reparations has been brought up a thousand times for Bernie Sanders. Because the question is framed so it's a lose-lose for Bernie. 
if he comes out against reparations, then, uh, you know, there's a, a strong contingent of the black vote that goes, like, fuck you, basically. I don't like that answer. But if he comes out for reparations, then the polls show the overwhelming majority of Americans go, eh, I don't agree with you on that one, Bernie. So it's a lose-lose. Either risk losing part of the, you know, a very important part of the Democratic base by coming out against it, or risk losing the overwhelming majority of the American people by coming out for it. So there's a reason why they keep bringing it up, because it's almost like a checkmate from the jump. No matter what he says, it's not going to help him. This is another one of those issues. And 90% of the time, his bluntness and his straightforwardness helps him, in my opinion. His ability to be honest and just tell you exactly what he thinks helps him in most situations. Because in most situations, the American people already agree. This is one of those rare instances where his honesty actually hurt him. So every mainstream media outlet, again, regardless of what you think about his answer, you might love his answer. Every single mainstream media outlet had the headline, Bernie Sanders wants Boston Marathon Bomber to be able to vote. Every single outlet, every single one. It was the number one story coming out of his town hall. So, and again, you go back and you listen to his answer. Sure, he's, he's thoughtful about it, but that is ultimately what he ends up saying. <laughs> he ends up giving them, he ends up walking right into the trap and giving them exactly what they want. Now, again, you might say, hey, fuck that, man. He's got to stand on principle, and this is an issue where he can stand on principle, and good for him for, for being Bernie Sanders and being so forward-thinking that he's willing to, to say something like this. But my response to you is, again, we're not playing checkers anymore, bitch. You want to win the election or do you not want to win the election? So I think he needs, uh, his, his team needs to coach him much better for issues like this because as soon as we get out of the areas where people already agree with him, I, I think you're delusional if you think, hey, maybe, maybe this helped him or maybe this didn't hurt him. I definitely think this hurt him. You, don't, you cannot casually take a position like this on an issue where 75% of the American people disagree without a giant concerted effort to make the argument. And no disrespect to my fellow lefties, but um, a lot of the responses I've seen to this were just so flippant in the sense that you're dating yourself. Like, you're dating yourself by just kind of being like, well, obviously, Bernie's right. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. It's not obvious if 75% of the American people disagree. That's not obvious at all. Again, you might be right. Bernie might be right. But it's not obvious. Stop pretending like it's... I saw one, one person said something like, how is this even hard? How is this even hard? What? <laughs> of course it's hard. 75% of the American people disagree with you. You can't just like, like be, go deeper in our bubble and date ourselves more and be like, well, if you disagree, you're like, like what's wrong with you? No, because, okay, so how would I respond? Because that's really what I think where the meat of the conversation is. Because I can sit here and criticize all day and say, oh, I think this hurt him. Oh, the poll show, the American people are against him. But I have to have answers. I can't just critique. I've got to build up. I've got to help. I've got to say, hey, this is, this is the, the right way to respond. So um, what I think Bernie should have done is, and again, on 90% of the issues or more, I 100% support Bernie's just blunt honesty to the point, here's what I think. And it helps him when people already agree. But on this one, I basically would have called a spade a spade. And when they asked the question, I would have said, that's a ridiculous question. 
The first thing I would have done is basically delegitimize the question. You want to know why I would have done that? Because it's an illegitimate question. It's a dumb question. The whole point of the question was a trick. It's a trap. Like the whole thing. The whole thing. So call a spade a spade. Don't act like, as if that's something like, like Bernie or lefties are sitting home like, oh, my heart bleeds for the Boston Marathon bomber because he's not able to vote. Nobody's sitting at home and thinking that. Like nobody, this was brought up for a very specific reason. That specific reason is to tear down Bernie Sanders because the framing of the question is such that he can't win with the answer. So say that. Call it out. Say uh, that's, a, that's a ridiculous question. And then you can say something like, why are you trivializing an important issue like voting rights? He can call it a gotcha question. Basically, honestly, you have to, in a weird way, pull a Trump. What happens when the media says shit about Trump that he doesn't like? Fake news. Fake news. He just swats it aside. And then he goes on to reframe it however he wants to reframe it. So how would you do that in this instance? You do the functional equivalent of fake news. You say, that's a, honestly, that's a ridiculous question, and you're trivializing a very important issue of voting rights. And obviously, my main concern is all of these nonviolent offenders who've been disenfranchised as a result of our backwards laws. Boom. Done. Move on to the next question. That's it. That's it. Because, and here's the thing. And I think you, you guys will all get this concept, or most of you will get this concept. It's possible to be correct on an issue, but being so unpalatable in how you present it that it actually hurts you. And a good example of this is I think it was Michael Dukakis in the elections you know, back, I don't even know how long ago it was now. I think I wasn't even born yet when these, when these elections happened. Um, he was asked... Uh, and again, smear question. He was the Democratic nominee running for president, and then he was asked in a debate, uh, what if your wife, Kitty Dukakis, was raped and murdered? Would you support the death penalty for um, the person who did it? And his response was horrible. <laughs> his response was basically like, well, no, you know I don't support the death penalty, and uh, the numbers show that it indeed is not the deterrent, and and everybody looked at him and they said, fuck you. Fuck you. Like, you're kind of, that, that's su you're such an ideologue and a robot that you, now you have no human empathy. And you weren't able to say the thing that everybody was thinking when that question was asked. Which is like, well, first and foremost, would I want to have that guy killed if he raped and killed my wife? Hell yeah, I'd want to have him raped and killed. Absolutely, I'd want to have him raped and killed. But that's not the issue. The issue is the fact that when it comes to the death penalty, at least 4% of the time, we kill the wrong people. So we cannot have a system in place that murders innocent people. That's what this issue is really about. That's how you answer that question. But Bernie, like, since he's an ideologue, and I mean that in a positive sense, not a negative sense in the case of Bernie, he actually believes in what he's talking about, and he's willing to make the case no matter what. Every now and then, you're going to walk through a minefield and you're going to step on a mine. And that's what happened here. And because everybody, like, so the answer I gave, I think, is a, is a better answer for Bernie to give. Kind of sidestep it and obfuscate a little bit. And you can obfuscate when it's a shitty question. Like, you're allowed to do that. If the question is a smear question, you're allowed to do that, 
Um, but, fuck, what, what was the other point I was going to make? Shit, there was a good point there. Oh, the other thing Bernie could have done is you have to give people the heaping dose of the elephant in the room, which everybody's waiting for you to do, which is like, well, first of all, let me say I have zero f- sympathy for the monster who did what he did at the Boston Marathon bombing. So many lives of innocent women and children and men were destroyed by the terrible, uh, you know, terroristic act committed by this little monster. Now, having said that, the, the reason why this issue of voting rights is so important is because there are countless disenfranchised nonviolent offenders, and it's a bad idea to trivialize this issue by only looking at it through the lens of rapists and murderers. Like, that's another good answer he could have given. But I just don't think his answer was that good. And I think that um, if you're going to make the case for a position that 75% of the American people disagree with, you have to do it knowing that fact and, and going into it with a very clever strategy. Because you can't, again, this is not something you could just, ah, I don't know, here's my take on it. Because you're, you're up against a tsunami of disagreement, and you have to respect that for what it is because it's there. Now, the final point is, when people make the argument, and I've seen this argument a lot, and here's why I think that this is, you don't make this argument because I don't think it's that compelling, and I don't think it works. I think saying the things I already laid out for Bernie to say, that's what I think is the best he could have done with that question, in my opinion. But, like, he... People are defaulting to, well, and Bernie said this too, like, it's a right. So if it's a right, it's absolute, it's off the table, that's the end of the conversation. So it, that, that's game, set, match right there. It's, it's a right. It's absolute. That's it. But as people have pointed out, and it's true, you lose a lot of your rights when you go in prison. So that's not, like, that's not the checkmate that a lot of people think it is. Like, well, it's a right, so obviously it's over. Like, where's the comp- No, no, no. Well, you lose a lot of your rights when you go in prison. So why, like, it's weird to just assume, like, well, this, this particular one is different. When you go to prison, you can't get up, you can't go out to the local deli if you want to go to the local deli. Normally, you'd have the freedom to do that in America. You have right, a right to do that in America. You don't have a right after you kill somebody. So it, you, that's not a good enough argument. You can't use that argument. And then also, to the idea that it's, an, it's absolute, Okay, well, if it's absolute, then we need to get rid of all the age restrictions. If it's a right and it's absolute, why do we have it so you have to be over 18 to vote? A 16-year-old can make the case. Uh, what the fuck? So the Boston Marathon bomber can vote, but I, a 16-year-old who's committed no crime, can't vote? So, listen, bottom line is, don't... You have to come correct on an issue where 75% of the American people disagree with you. And he didn't do that. And he kind of walked right into the trap. Um, Now, uh, I will say this. It's fucking admirable that Bernie Sanders, he's so principled that, like, he he was willing to step into that minefield and, like, get hit with the waterfall of criticism. And that's admirable as fuck. If I'm advising Bernie, what I would tell him is, that's great, but we also need to be intelligent about our strategy and we also need to win (laughs) like my main concern is because i trust bernie on the policy issues 100 percent. so my main concern for him is winning how are we going to win and i would coach him in every way shape and form to maximize his chance of winning 
And I just don't think he gave an answer. Removing ourselves from our little bubble, from our left-wing bubble, uh, you know, when you look at the answer there, that's not going to satisfy the majority of the American people. It's just not, because 75% already disagree with him, and I don't think his answer was that great. So, I don't know. That's my breakdown of this situation. Listen, look for this trick in the future, because they're going to keep doing it. They're going to want him to keep talking about reparations. They're going to keep bringing that up because it's a lose-lose no matter what he says. Now they're going to bring this up, I guarantee you, every time there's a debate, every time there's a town hall, they're going to bring this up again. So he better sharpen his answer and come up with a better answer. Um, And now, you know, whatever, there's still probably like two or three other issues out there where his position is not what the majority of the American people already believe. And they're going to do their fucking best, man, to keep bringing up those issues. Because if you can't take him down by attacking him, effectively make him attack himself by only talking about the issues where he keeps reminding the American people, I'm not with you on this position. It's a brilliant trick. It's a clever trick, and they know he's too principled to find a way out of it. Like, he'll just tell you what he thinks. They know he's too principled to strategize and, like, get his, you know, get his, get off the topics where he shouldn't want to talk about them because it's hurting his chances and move to the topics where it's his wheelhouse and he wins all day long. So that's the thing where I think he's missing, and that's the thing where I think his, uh, you know, his team is a little off. Um, But, uh, you know, I did a poll on this, by the way, and I gave people the options. Would you, when it comes to uh, voting rights for convicted criminals, do you support letting them vote even when incarcerated because it's a right, full stop, period? Do you support... Um, when somebody commits a crime, one of the rights that gets taken away is their voting rights, and they shouldn't be able to vote, even when they're out of prison. Uh, And then the other options I gave were, you can't vote while you're in prison, but then when you served your debt to society and you're out, you get your voting rights restored fully. And then the other option I gave was, um, nonviolent offenders keep their right to vote even when incarcerated, but the only people who cannot vote while incarcerated are the most violent criminals, rapists, terrorists, um, murderers. And when they're out of prison, they get their right to vote back. And Bernie's position still won. It was with over 50% of, of my audience that said that, my followers on Twitter. But I'm actually very curious what everybody would have said if the well wasn't poisoned a little bit. Because I feel like Bernie coming out for this makes my audience of mostly Bernie supporters go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah he's right about that. But I'm, I, if I asked that question before Bernie Sanders said what he said, I'm curious if the results would have been different. I think they would have been slightly different. Maybe you still would have had a plurality going for Bernie's position, but I think it would have been, there would have been a lot more, I, I think, of what Ro Khanna's position is, which is uh, let nonviolent drug offenders be able to vote even while incarcerated. But violent offenders can't vote while in prison, but when they're out, then they're able to, uh, to vote. So Bernie's fighting an uphill battle here, that's for sure. Um, and I do think this was a step backwards, but we'll see because he's pretty far ahead in the polls now. So honestly, he can afford a couple mistakes here and there. Um, but I just hope that his team starts coaching him better. And also, another thing that they could do is now that he's, he's out about this and open with it, and he's planted his flag on this issue, 
well, now you have no choice but to, now you have to build the case in an affirmative fac- uh, fashion because now cat's out of the bag, you can't put it back in. So what I would do now if I was on Bernie's team is I would um, go interview, because in Vermont and in Maine, they already have this, okay? You can already vote while you're, while you're incarcerated. And then as Bernie pointed out on his Twitter feed, in over, I think it's over 30 countries, you can vote while incarcerated. There's a very long list of those countries, and most of those countries are the developed countries. So, you know, I would go and profile some of these people in, in Vermont and Maine who are criminals, who are incarcerated, and who still were able to vote, and go talk to them and just show that, like, you know, most of these people that we're talking about, they're not monsters. They're not monsters. They're just regular people, and they have interesting backstories, and they may have messed up a couple times in their lives. But you have to, the thing is, you have to shift the conversation to portray your position in the positive light. And the way to do that is go find the people who are the nonviolent offenders who can vote and talk to them. And also go find nonviolent offenders who can't vote in other states and show what a tragedy it is. So you have to, now that he's out and he's, you know, planted his flag on this issue, now you've got to be super clever about it and you've got to find a way to make the argument appealing and to show your view in the best possible light. So I hope that they do that moving forward, but I also hope he just, you know, his advisors kind of smarten up because they're coming for Bernie and now they have a bunch of clever tricks and they are clear. Okay. Let's go to uh, another dumb question being asked uh, to Bernie. So Bernie Sanders was asked a dumb question yet again at his CNN town hall. Check it out. Uh, Hi, Senator Sanders. So my father's family left Soviet Russia in 1979, fleeing from some of the very same socialist policies that you seem eager to implement in this country. So my question is, how do you rectify your notion of democratic socialism with the failures of socialism in nearly every country that has tried it? You think that's... Thank you for asking that question. Is it your assumption that I supported or believe in authoritarian communism that existed in the Soviet Union? I don't. I never have, and I opposed it. I believe in a vigorous democracy. But you have asked me the question about democratic socialism, fair question, and let me answer it. I happen to believe that in the United States there is something fundamentally wrong when we have three families owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society, 160 million people. Something wrong when the top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 92%. Something very wrong when 49% of all new income today is going to the top 1%. And something is equally wrong when we have a corrupt political system made even worse by this disastrous Citizens United Supreme Court decision, which allows billionaires to spend unlimited sums of money to elect candidates who represent the wealthy and the powerful. So answer number one to your question. It's a radical idea. Maybe not everybody agrees, but I happen to believe we should have a government that represents working families and not just the 1% and powerful corporations. All right, that's point number one. 
but so what do I mean when I talk about democratic socialism? It certainly is not the authoritarian communism that existed in the Soviet Union and in other communist countries. This is what it means. It means that we cherish, among other things, our Bill of Rights. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt made this point. Chris, I don't know if you remember, you read about it, 1944, in a State of the Union address that never got a whole lot of attention. This is what he said, basically. It was a very profound speech toward the end of World War II. He said, you know, we got a great constitution. Bill of Rights protects your freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, all that stuff, great. But you know what it doesn't protect? It doesn't protect and guarantee you economic rights. So, Samantha, let me be very honest with you. I believe that in a democratic, civilized society, health care is a human right. Government should make that happen. I, I believe that every young person in this country regardless of his or her income, has the right to get all of the education they need. That's why I have fought hard, with some success, to move toward making public colleges and universities tuition-free and very substantially reduce student debt. And I believe that there is something wrong in America today when you've got millions of families paying 40, 50, 60% of their limited incomes to put a roof over their heads. And that millions of working class families, young parents, cannot find quality and affordable childcare. So I happen to believe that we have to address the issue of grotesque levels of income and wealth inequality, very, very rich, getting much richer, middle class struggling, 40 million people living in poverty. And what democratic socialism means to me is we expand Medicare, we provide educational opportunity to all Americans, we rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. In other words, government serves the needs of all people rather than just wealthy campaign contributors. That's what that means to me. Okay, so uh, the person who asked that question is part of the Harvard Centrist Society. And, uh, you know, the uh, who I didn't even know that existed until this happened. And the Harvard Centrist Society on Twitter um, sent something out when she asked this question. This is like the VP of Harvard Centrist Society. And they were saying, what a wonderful question. And they got ratioed to high heaven, son. It was just like everybody on Twitter was just like, fuck you. <laughs> See, here's the thing, man. Your mom and dad lied to you when they said there's no such thing as a stupid question. Of course there's such thing as a stupid question. It's relatively obvious that there's such thing as a stupid question. And you just heard one right there. So she basically frames the question by saying, Senator Sanders, my father fled the Soviet Union. Why do you want to make America the Soviet Union? He's been on the record for the past, like, 10 years, crystal clear, saying, okay, I don't, I don't favor that. He said in this answer, he goes, you think I support some sort of version of authoritarian communism? He's like, I don't. I don't support that at all. And then he goes on to explain, basically, his views are social democratic. He says, what does democratic socialism mean to me? Okay, it means expanding Medicare so we have Medicare for all. It means having free college for people so you get opportunities and we give people equal opportunity, uh, you know, to give them a fighting chance to actually make a decent living in this world. It means he supports unions in order to... Uh, 
fight back against the excesses of management and the owner class. That's all he means. This, this isn't radical. Again, if you look at the world, if you look at uh, you know, the industrialized, developed world, he's the centrist. Because the rest of the developed world is like, yeah, what he's saying is obvious, and we all have systems like that already set up where people get free health care, people get free college, people have a better shot at you know, uh, living a decent, dignified life, they get paid vacation time by law, so on and so forth. This is all he's talking about. So I think that question is stupid because you know the answer because he's already answered this question 497 times, man. I'm so sick of this. If you're about to ask Bernie Sanders a question, and in the process of that question, you bring up the Soviet Union, you bring up Cuba, you bring up Venezuela, um, do yourself a favor. Don't. Shut the fuck up, Sville, son. Because you're, you're asking a question he's already answered a million times, and you're just simply not listening. Or you don't care that he answered it and was crystal clear. So, uh, you know, I'm, I get fucking frustrated because this is, it's so tiresome. But then again, the questions like this are, this is the lower level prop, anti-Bernie propaganda. The higher level one was the trick question about the Boston Marathon bomber and should he be able to vote. That's like next level, super clever propaganda against Bernie. Incredible framing where there, there's no winning for him when he answers it and he's got to try to find a way to navigate that. And, but this is like you know, tier one level, incredibly shitty, like you should already know this propaganda where you're just pitching him a softball down the center of the plate. So I really shouldn't be complaining. But the final point I want to make on this is, God damn it, man, I really wish that Bernie Sanders just said social democracy from the beginning. He always says democratic socialism, and then he goes on to describe social democracy. So why don't you just describe what you actually are, which is a social democrat? I don't, like, that's a little frustrating to me because I feel like you give the right wing a gift when you say, I'm going to rep this post-capitalist philosophy, that's what traditional democratic socialism is, I'm going to say that this label, which is totally post-capitalist and not about mixed market economies, that this applies to me, but then you go on to describe, actually, no, your position is not uh, post-capitalist, your position is like Denmark or Norway or Sweden. So I don't know, why would you, it's like, why did you give them a gift and then, in your clarification, you go on to explain, like, no, 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 I actually, I'm not that. So why didn't you just say social democracy from the beginning? And my guess is either he doesn't, either he doesn't really know that there's, a, that there's actually a pretty uh, big difference when you look at the, the definition of social democracy versus democratic socialism, or in his heart of hearts he really is a, a democratic socialist, but he knows we're never going to get there. So, you know, that's to drag the Overton window further to the left but really the compromise position would then become social democracy. So I don't know what it is, but I just wish that, because Bernie's done this, AOC has done this, others have done this. They love to proclaim, I'm a democratic socialist, but then when they describe what they mean, they just mean social democracy. Democratic socialism, the traditional definition, is a post-capitalist philosophy. Go ask anybody in DSA, they'll tell you. Um, But social democracy is not a post-capitalist philosophy. It's basically as far left as you can possibly go while still having elements of capitalism in your system. That's what social democracy is. That's what Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Sweden, Finland, that's what all those places are. And I wish Bernie had just said that from the beginning because it's more accurate as to describe his beliefs. And I think the right's going to smear you no matter what, but I think the smears uh, couldn't get as much traction if, if he just said social democracy from the beginning. Because, again, if you look up social democracy, it'll say mixed market economy, like the Scandinavian model, also known as welfare statism. If you look up um, 
democratic socialism. That's a, technically a post-capitalist philosophy. But now I feel like Bernie, since he, dis- he says democratic socialism, but he describes social democracy, I think he's, he's now repped that so strongly and now it's so prominent that now democratic socialism has two meanings. <laughs> one of those meanings is uh, a post-capitalist philosophy. The other one is social democracy. So he's now made it so that, like, the definition has shifted, and it could be either one of those things. You could be a post-capitalist democratic socialist, or you could be a mixed market economy democratic socialist. So I don't know. Um, either way, his answer is fine. He's, he goes into the specifics of what he believes, and it's still a smear question. It's still a dumb question, and he'll get it a thousand times more. You can bet your ass on that. Okay, next. Let's go to Elizabeth Warren. This, this segment's a little bit long, but I feel like it's necessary. It's important. Okay, here we go. So Elizabeth Warren did uh, a CNN town hall. Now, in many parts of the town hall, I think she did a good job. I love her idea of a wealth tax. She's been talking about that quite a bit. That has, they polled that now. It has the support of the overwhelming majority of the American people. Um, and I don't think Bernie has come out in favor of a wealth tax. He favors other kinds of taxes on the wealthy, but not in particular a wealth tax. Uh, I think he's more in the camp of just raising the top uh, marginal income tax rate. Um, I'm warming to the idea of Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax because it's, uh, it's almost undodgeable the way it's set up. So that's, that's a massive positive. And of course it only applies to the richest of the richest of the rich, which is also a massive positive. So there, she had her moments, which were wonderful, whether it's the wealth tax, whether it's her new plan that she just rolled out, which is basically a student loan debt cancellation program, which is glorious. You know, that's something that all the candidates should be supporting. So, uh, she has her upsides, for sure. Now, her downsides, you guys know them. We've spoken about them at length. Uh, she has a giant blind spot on foreign policy. She voted for Donald Trump's horrendous, disastrous, bloated, monstrous military budget. That's basically unforgivable, I'd say. She's also willing to play politics for a perceived political gain. That's why she didn't endorse Bernie in 2016. So... And also, she's been waffling on Medicare for all recently, which also is kind of unforgivable, in my opinion. She likes to do this talking point where she equates all the Democratic proposals as if they're all the same. And I was like, no, they're not even close to all the same. All of the Democratic proposals, except the Medicare for all proposals, are literally just gifts to the insurance industry to let them know, hey, I'm still going to let you exist and get rich off of people's misery. So when she equates public option or Medicare expansion and says, like, this is... We're all, the core is the same. That's what she says. The core is the same, and we're all trying to get to the same place. No, 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 no. So she shines on regulatory policy and tax policy, and then she's weaker in other areas. Now, having said all that, I'm going to play for you a clip here, which really got under my skin during her town hall. This is her pontificating on the issue of impeachment. Let's listen, and then we'll break it down. You have called for... Uh, impeachment proceedings to be initiated against President Trump. What do you say to those Democrats who say, look, this is not the time. It's going to take away focus from winning in 2020. Speaker Pelosi told her caucus again just today 
that she has no plans to immediately initiate impeachment proceedings. So there is no political inconvenience exception to the United States Constitution. Um, this one is, if I can, I want to take a little time on this because I think this is really important. Um, uh, last Thursday, uh, I've been out, I've been to South Carolina. Uh, this was all about climate change. That's where I was, South Carolina, coastal communities that were protesting offshore drilling. I then came to Colorado, um, the biggest drought in 1,200 years, and then to Utah, where they had one of the worst wildfire seasons in a generation. And I'm on an airplane coming back, and the Mueller report drops. And so I start reading it on the airplane. I read it on through the evening. I read it into the wee hours of the morning. And when I get to the end, three things just jump off the page. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, an Independent, a Libertarian, a Vegetarian. <laughs> three things just totally jump off the page. The first is that a hostile foreign government attacked our 2016 election in order to help Donald Trump. The evidence is just there, read it, footnote after footnote, page after page documentation. Part two, Donald Trump welcomed that help. So on the first one about what they did, understand, this was a sophisticated attack. They attacked part of the voting system. That's going to be an ongoing federal investigation. They hacked into more than 50 computers at the DNC, the DCCC, a very serious attack. And Donald Trump welcoming it um, in the Mueller report. Just read it. Uh, he gets off the phone from an unnamed caller and looks up and says to the other person in the phone, there are more leaks coming. Uh, the idea that he was welcoming what was happening from the Russian government, and by the summer of 2016, the report documents that by that point, the Trump, administ uh, the Trump uh, campaign actually had a worked out formal process for dealing with the leaks that were coming in from the Russians. So that's part two. Part three is when the federal government starts to investigate part one and part two, Donald Trump took repeated steps aggressively to try to halt the investigation, derail the investigation, push the investigation somewhere else, but otherwise keep that investigation from going forward and turning into a serious investigation about a hostile foreign government that attacked us and about his own personal interests. So here's how I see this. If any other human being in this country had done what's documented in the Mueller report, they would be arrested and put in jail. Obstruction of justice is a serious crime in this country. But Mueller believed, because of the directions from Donald Trump's Justice Department, that he could not bring a criminal indictment against the sitting president. So I think he's wrong on that, but that's what he believed. So he serves the whole thing up to the United States Congress and says, in effect, if there's going to be any accountability, that accountability has to come from the Congress. 
And the tool that we are given for that accountability is the impeachment process. This is not about politics. This is about principle. This is about what kind of a democracy we have. In a dictatorship, everything in government revolves around protecting the one person at the center. But not in our democracy and not under our Constitution. We have checks and balances. And we have to proceed here in a way, understanding our place in history, that not only protects democracy now, but protects democracy when the next president comes in and the next president and the president after that. That's our responsibility. You started off by saying by talking about some of your travels and people talking about climate change and their yes. concerns and tabletop issues. Yes. Doesn't putting a lot of Democrats focused on impeaching the president, which is not going to pass in the Senate, it's not really going to go anywhere in that sense, doesn't that take away focus from the tabletop issues that you and other Democrats say they want to run on? So, you know, let me just say, if you've actually read the Mueller report, it's all laid out there. It's not like it's going to take a long time to figure this out. It's there. It's got the footnotes. It's got the points. It connects directly to the law. But this really is fundamentally, I took an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States. And so did everybody else in the Senate and in the House. And I believe that every person in the Senate and the House ought to have to vote and to say either yeah, that's okay with me. Yeah, let a president just step in the way he did when he told the White House counsel to go fire Mueller and then told the White House counsel to go lie about having told the White House counsel to go fire Mueller and then told the White House counsel to write a letter saying that Donald Trump had not told him to go fire Mueller and then to say, why on earth would you take notes about what I said to you? The lawyers I deal with never put anything in writing. If there are people in the House of the Senate who want to say that's what a president can do when the president is being investigated for his own wrongdoings or when a foreign government attacks our country, then they should have to take that vote and live with it for the rest of their lives. Okay, that isn't one-tenth as poignant as she thinks it is. This is, in my opinion, this is Elizabeth Warren playing politics for perceived political gain. Does Elizabeth Warren know that impeachment would fail against Donald Trump? Yes. Yes, she does. Does she know that we have a limited amount of time, a limited amount of resources, and if the Democrats do impeachment, then that is literally all the media would talk about 24-7, and it would suck the air out of the room from talking about the important issues. Oh, yeah, she knows that. But she's still saying anyway that we should do it. You want to know why? She's playing politics. That's why. She's found an issue where she could plant a flag and go, me? I'm left of Bernie, see? See, I'm left of Bernie. Now, what did Bernie say on this issue? I think Bernie was way more thoughtful, way more nuanced, way more honest. And he was like, listen, if we do that, that is going to distract from all the important issues that we should be talking about, which would basically guarantee an election victory in 2020. Now, if you want to go down that path, fine. 
but it's not going to work, and it's going to distract from the important issues. And he says, to be fair, he says, we should investigate all this stuff. Okay, great, have the House investigate, for sure. Do that, go for it. No problem with that at all. They should be. In fact, they should be investigating a lot of Donald Trump stuff, including his business activities. So I'm totally for that. But this is, this is just political hackery, in my opinion. She knows that impeachment is not going to go anywhere. And she knows it's going to suck all the air out of the room and make it so that's all it's focused on until 2020. So presumably she knows this is a giant gift to Donald Trump. But what does she do? She came up with this clever little talking point. There's no political inconvenience exception to the Constitution. Oh, really? There's not? So I guess you supported impeachment of Barack Obama when he took our two wars and made them seven and was bombing illegally and offensively multiple countries that didn't attack us without a declaration of war from Congress. Oh, that's right. You didn't. You want to know why? Because you pick and choose based on politics. So, and, and again, for Trump, there's a strong case to be made for impeachment for what he's doing in Yemen, illegal offensive war, assisting a genocide, that's against our Constitution, um, and what he's doing with emoluments, taking money from foreign governments, doing favors for them. There may even be literal quid pro quos. So if you were going to focus on impeachment, there are better arguments about that where perhaps at least it wouldn't hurt you too much because at least you'd be focusing on real issues. But if you do it over obstruction, we already know exactly what their response is going to be. How can I be obstructing when Mueller also says there was no collusion, so there was no original crime? So I'm obstructing when there's not an original crime? Weird way to obstruct. I guess I'm obstructing nothing, aren't I? Now, you can agree with that argument or disagree with that argument. It doesn't matter. That's the argument they're going to make, and that argument is going to stick with the American people. Remember, when Bill Clinton was impeached over you know, the, the blowjob in the Oval Office, their argument was you lied under oath. And basically the Clinton team was like, well, if we lie about a question that shouldn't have been asked in the first place, whoop do freaking do who cares? And Bill Clinton's approval rating went up, went up. Now, right now, Donald Trump's approval rating went down a little bit in the wake of the Mueller report. Because, yeah, he looks like the unhinged maniac that he is. So I'm not surprised by that at all. But you know what else you shouldn't be surprised by? If Democrats go to impeach, his approval, rate, his approval rating will go up. Hear me now, quote me later. Hear me now, quote me later. Because they are going to bludgeon Democrats over the head with this. Imagine Elizabeth Warren standing on a debate stage with Donald Trump in 2020. Elizabeth Warren having championed impeachment, having known that impeachment will get nowhere, and then he does a fucking victory lap and dances on her carcass. On the debate stage. You know, uh, Pocahontas supported... Uh, Supported impeachment. What happened with that Pocahontas? You know what the report found? You know what the report found? No collusion. No collusion. No collusion. But you wanted to impeach me over obstruction of a crime that didn't occur. Well, how'd that work out, Pocahontas? How'd that go? You're handing him a giant political gift, and I think you're smart enough to know that, but I think you don't care because I think you view this as an opportunity to make it look like you're outlefting Bernie when you're not. Oh, I just, here's what I'm sick of, guys. If you're in favor of impeachment, fine. But stop pretending like there are not counter-arguments to your position and address the fucking counter-arguments. But people who are for impeachment, don't address them. (laughs) They're just like, yeah, we got to do it. And then, how do you respond to the fact that um, it's not going to go anywhere because the Senate is majority Republican? 
I mean, we got to do it. Okay, uh, how do you respond to the fact that it will likely um, make Donald Trump's approval rating go up at a time when he's on the fucking ropes? All you got to do is hammer him with policy from now until the election and you win. Well, I'm, how do you uh, deal with the fact that the Mueller report, even though I think it shows obstruction, I think that's clear, but how do you, uh, you know, talk your way around the fact that it also says no evidence of collusion? They don't have answers to this because she's just politically posturing. Um, now, I would just want to touch on a few of the other things she said there. She said, the Mueller report detailed a hostile foreign government attacked our 2016 election. That's how you're going to frame, frame that? A hostile foreign government attacked our 2016 election. A hostile foreign government attacked our 2016 election. This reminds me of, who was it, Nadler, when he said, this is the equivalent of Pearl Harbor. What the fuck? You know what she's talking about? The uh, less than $200,000 ad campaign, troll farm ad campaign, that uh, the Russian government allegedly spent on uh, the 2016 election. That's a, a hostile attack on our election, or the best interpretation of what she's saying is, oh, the DNC leaks. Again, you're going to describe that as a hostile foreign government attacking our 2016 election. I describe that as transparency. That's how I describe that. In the same way, I would support leaks on, R on the RNC and on Donald Trump. Imagine if the, the Russian government or the Iranian government or any government Imagine they leaked Donald Trump's tax returns and we learned about the details of his money laundering at his Panama hotel um, for the mafia. Would you have Elizabeth Warren and all of uh, Democratic media like MSNBC saying, good sir, I refuse to talk about this story because of the source. It was a hostile foreign government. No, they'd run with it all day. You want to know why? Because the substance of the leaks, that's what matters. And this is an issue where there should be transparency. So when we learn about Hillary Clinton saying there's intolerable bigotry against the rich in this country, when we learn about her saying, I have public positions and private positions, when we learn about how the DNC was acting as a campaign arm of the Clinton campaign, and she had the last call on fucking press releases from the DNC, when we learn about all that, her getting Donna Brazil giving her the questions before debates, we should learn that, and for you to describe that as a, an attack of a hostile foreign government is honestly fucking a disgusting, and it's basically a lie. That's what it is, because you're mischaracterizing it to the point of just totally obscuring what it really is. Uh, and then when she says, and a hostile foreign government attacked our 2016 election, and Trump welcomed that help. You mean in the same way that Hillary Clinton welcomed the help? from Ukraine when Ukraine dug up dirt on Trump and his campaign? Oh, I'm sorry. Does taking, does applying the principle to you as well, is that not okay? Am I not allowed to do that? So let me get this straight. The principle is you cannot accept um, any form of help from a foreign government. That's the principle, right? Well, Hillary and her team got help from Ukraine. Trump, I mean, yes, it's true that the leaks ended up helping his campaign for sure. Um, but if you're going to go after Trump for that, you should have to go after Hillary for accepting help from Ukraine. And furthermore, it is true that the Steele dossier originally came from a source inside the Russian government. So Hillary got help from the Russian government as well. I mean, again, see, when you try to apply, like, objective standards and principles here, all the things she's saying, they just crumble. They just fall apart. Um, and 
she said they attacked the voting system. You know how many votes were flipped as a result of uh, the Russian government? Zero. My problem with what she's saying is it's all so misleading. And the sense you get from listening to her is it was this like, you know, Tom Clancy novel thriller of a Manchurian candidate and his team working with the Russian government to like take over the U.S. government or something. Like that's the sense of everything she's saying, but that is utter garbage. And I think deep down she knows it's garbage, but she's just doing this for political posturing and it's disgusting. And finally, when she says, you know, we have to protect democracy. Okay, I agree with that. You want to know how you do it? Paper ballots. You want to know how else you do it? Increase cybersecurity, not just for the U.S. government, also for the DNC, also for the RNC, and then that's it. We move forward. You know, you want to, wit- uh, you want to whine all day long. Oh, my God, a fucking hostile attack. We're, you know, we got information on candidates that we should have had because it was important information. Oh, my God, I'm so against this. Okay, well, increase your cybersecurity and fucking pass paper ballots and we're done. We're, we're, there's the solution to the problem. But you don't want to talk about the real solutions because, again, you want to politically posture, and I think it's gross. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, I got Eric Swalwell, Pete Booty Judge. And I got uh, Bet on my stork, who is who's imploding in a way that's kind of hilarious. <laughs> so stay right there. We'll be right back.
we back, bitches. Let's talk about Eric Swalwell. I'm not sure we've even done a segment on this guy yet. But that's for good reason. <laughs> All right, Eric Swalwell. Where's my video on this? This is actually hilarious. And I'm actually really happy that this MSNBC host did what he did. So Eric Swalwell is a Democratic congressman who's running for president. And he's so delusional on the issue of Russiagate that even MSNBC is like, I mean, we're like home of Rachel Maddow, who was like the number one peddler of this. And we're out there too. But I mean, you dude are like, I mean, you're making us go, whoa. So uh, watch this. And I like how he always looks like he's, he's like lost. He's a, he's a little boy who's like lost at a festival or something looking for his mom and dad. He always has this look on his face like, but let's watch and then we'll discuss. Financial relationship that Donald Trump had with the Russians on all this Russia stuff. And one of the questions I think that comes out of that is whether you were out too far before we got the Mueller report evidence on the issue of collusion. Uh, as I think viewers know, uh, Mueller used a legal term and did not find a chargeable. Russia-Trump conspiracy. Um, you talk about collusion, and you've also, and I'm going to play this for you, talk about it pretty directly as if there was a personal link, a personal activity by Donald Trump established. Take a look. All of the arrows continue to point to a personal, political, and financial relationship that Donald Trump had with the Russians. Do you believe the president right now has been an agent of the Russians? Yes. I'm not hearing evidence that he's an agent of Russia. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear. It's almost hiding in plain sight. Do you believe that the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians in the 2016 campaign? Yes. Do you believe the president himself colluded with the Russians? Yes. There was certainly evidence of collusion, not evidence that met the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, that this president in no way is cleared. Do you accept the findings in the Mueller report uh, that do not support some of those claims? Well, I, I accept that I probably should have been out there a little bit earlier because who knew how many links there were, 200 pages of links. I accept also, Ari, that prior Congresses did not have an imagination to see a president or a campaign have so many concerning conduct and not write laws to prohibit it. But it did meet the standard beyond a reasonable doubt. But here's what we know. The Russians helped Donald Trump. Sure, but to be clear, so, so you're no longer maintaining that he is effectively a, quote, Russian asset. No, I, I think he acts on Russia's behalf, and I challenge him to show me otherwise. Oh, come on, dude. How many times have we answered that question, and we've answered it in detail? The reality is these kinds of people don't want to listen. You don't want to listen. You don't want to hear the fact that Donald Trump's administration has sent warships to the Black Sea in a direct escalation with Russia. You don't want to hear the fact that there's a NATO buildup on Russia's border. You don't want to hear the fact that Donald Trump has been repeatedly badgering Germany, Angela Merkel, to axe an oil deal she has with Russia because Trump wants that oil deal sent to the United States of America. You don't want to hear the fact that we're permanently militarily occupying Syria directly against the wishes of Vladimir Putin. You don't want to hear the fact that Donald Trump and John Bolton and his merry band of neocon idiots 
are escalating and trying to do regime change in Venezuela, which is the exact opposite of what Vladimir Putin wants. You don't want to hear the fact that Donald Trump uh, did not allow, axed a, an ExxonMobil and Russia oil deal that was set to go into place, and he axed it and said, not on my watch, this isn't happening. You don't want to hear any of these facts, that he armed Ukraine, which is probably the single biggest escalation with the Russian government that we've seen in the past two decades. You don't want to hear it, because what you're going to do is, oh, blah, 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 it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that all these policies are directly against the, the interests of the Russian government, directly against the interests of Vladimir Putin. I have my narrative, and my narrative is set. And it, counter evidence, I will either dismiss and ignore, or I will somehow use the evidence and spin it into supporting my theory, which is the cornerstone of a conspiracy theory, by the way. You take evidence that disproves it and debunks it, and you somehow spin it as if it proves it. So that's, like, at this point, I don't know if this guy's stupid or dishonest. I'm not sure which it is. But I, I will tell you what the primary motivation is for a guy like Eric Swalwell. And you can see it all over his face, man. It's not hard to figure out. When you want to stand out from the crowd, so Eric Swalwell is just a random congressperson, but you want to stand out among the crowd, how do you stand out? and try to make yourself be viewed as this exceptional left Democratic congressperson? How do you stand out from the crowd? Well, if you wanted to do it the honest way, in the way that makes sense, in the way that's rational, you'd have to be a champion of left-wing policies that really help the American people, really stand up to the military-industrial complex and Wall Street and corporate power, you know, really just be a crusader for the things that would improve the lives of the American people. That's how you stand out as an exceptional Democratic congressperson. Eric Swalwell does not agree with the policies that would help people in that way. He doesn't agree with them. He doesn't agree with them. So then how do you stand out? What other option do you have? What out do you have? Well, along comes Russiagate. And here you can resist without resisting. You can stand out without doing any of the hard work by actually fighting for the American people. You can stand out without having to do that. It's a shortcut to success. All you have to do is plant your flag, be the loudest, the most ag aggressive, the most obnoxious, and the biggest Kool-Aid drinker on, the, on this issue, and all of a sudden, boom, you're a hero in, in Democratic partisan circles like on MSNBC. That's all I'm telling you, whether that calculation is conscious or not, that's what's going on. That's exactly what's going on. Oh, shit. I have an opportunity here to take this issue and be the loudest, most aggressive proponent of it, and it allows me to become a star without any of the hard work of fighting for the American people. It's kind of like, think about it for a, a Republican congressperson who decides, I'm just going to hammer away on Benghazi, and that's going to be my main thing is Benghazi, 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 Benghazi. The partisan Democrats who watch MSNBC, because that's all MSNBC is, is it's a propaganda arm of the Democratic Party. It's not a left-wing media outlet. It is a Democratic Party media outlet. Among that group of people, he will be, oh, my God, he's the best, Eric Swalwell. He's so strong. He's standing up to the Trump administration. Or, or he's a soulless hack who's trying to find a cheap shortcut to success and fame and notoriety. And that's exactly what he is. And it's so bad that even when the cornerstone of his theory is debunked, namely that Mueller says, in no uncertain terms, 
there's no evidence of collusion. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't look like he obstructed. I think it looks like Trump did obstruct. That doesn't mean Trump isn't a criminal in a thousand other ways. He is. I think he, he laundered money. I think he did uh, tax fraud and, and bank fraud and, and uh, tax evasion and a thousand crimes. But on this issue specifically, Mueller said no evidence of collusion, but now he can't give it up. He can't give it up because he's staked his whole fucking political identity on this bullshit. So he's going to dig the hole deeper and make himself look like an even bigger jackass. Well, buddy, listen, I got bad news for you. In the Democratic primary, you're going to finish near the bottom, son. You ain't going anywhere, my dude. Because you're not, you're not the majority of the American people and the majority of the left-wing base sees right through you. It's not that hard to do it. You're an empty suit. You're an empty suit with an empty face. I hope your mom and dad find you at the carnival. Okay, this next story is honestly one of my favorite of the day. I mean, you're going to like this one. Um, it's a little wonky, but it's, uh, it's good. So Pete Buttigieg was asked about the problem of deindustrialization and outsourcing and how, you know, all the factory workers in the middle of the country, how so many of these factory towns have been destroyed by terrible policy coming out of Washington, D.C. Um, and the thing that I think is so fascinating about this answer is that this is the kind of answer that, as a general rule, makes the establishment-minded folks, the corporate-minded folks, the centrists, and like the older generation of partisan Democrats, they hear the answer that you're about to hear, and they go, oh, Oh, what a wonderful answer. He's so well-spoken and smart and articulate. And he gave a long-winded response. And I love it. So this is like, there's a, uh, as a general rule, I think here, there's a generational divide in how well and how much people like this answer. Now, like I said, the centrist folks are going to swoon over this. But what I need you to do, and I think you guys are, are you know, more in tune and more able to do this than most other people is actually listen closely to see if he names a single policy solution here. So like I said, the question is, you know, hey, what about the outsourcing and the destruction of the Midwest because all the factories are shutting down and all that stuff? That's the gist of the question. And see if you hear a single concrete policy proposal. Um, this is really something else. Take a look. This is, uh, this is Christian uh, Abney, a freshman at Harvard from your home state of Indiana. Chris. All right. Where are you from? Um, I'm from Kokomo, actually. Nice. So pretty close to South Bend. Yeah. Um, so I'm from a city very similar to yours, a small Midwestern town that's obviously been very affected by the post-industrial situation of the United States. In a 2017 interview with David Axelrod, you noted that NAFTA resulted in irreplaceable job losses across the Midwest. How would your administration negotiate trade and bring success to American industry? 
Thanks for such a great question. As you know, this is close to my heart uh, because it's close to my hometown. And, uh, uh, you know, during the Chrysler uh, partial shutdown and all the layoffs, uh, Kokomo, what was happening in and around Howard County and Kokomo was an example of just how vulnerable our communities are in the industrial Midwest to uh, policies and, and markets when it comes to manufacturing. So we need to find a way to make sure that trade actually works for us. There's no building a wall around the status quo. You can't, can't put the horse back into the barn. It doesn't work that way. Um, but what we do need to make sure of is that uh, there are enough measures, uh, including adjustment assistance, uh, including uh, making sure that we make whole in some way the people who are made worse off, um, that, we're, that we're actually keeping the promise of trade. The promise that was made when I was growing up was that if we did these things, the rising tide would lift all boats, right, and, and we'd all be better off. And it turns out it didn't work that way. The rising tide rose. That part happened. It's just that a lot of the boats turned out to be anchored to the ocean floor. Um, but we can make trade work for our communities. One of my favorite examples, actually, is a union auto worker, the UAW uh, facility in St. Joseph County, where I live, that is making electric vehicles for a startup based in Silicon Valley, uh, where uh, the funds uh, and a lot of the investment came from China. And before that, uh, there was a three-year contract where that facility was working for Mercedes, uh, and they were making vehicles that are sold in the Asian market. So you got American union auto workers making German cars going to Chinese customers, and we're sending our products, not our jobs, to Asia. That's how I want it to work. That just one other thing I want to mention, as much legitimate concern as there is about trade and making sure we have fair trade uh, that works for us in communities like where you and I come from, we've got to be honest about the fact that for every job in manufacturing that has been lost as a consequence of trade, there are several more that have been lost as a result of technology and automation. And that's not going to change. That facility I was telling you about making electric vehicles, uh, even though they're planning to make something on the order of 30 to 50,000 cars, does it with hundreds of workers, not thousands or tens of thousands, the way it used to work in the Studebaker days when, when South Bend was an automotive center. That part's not going to change. So manufacturing can continue to grow stronger in this country, but uh, it's going to be less and less labor-intensive, less and less human beings on the floor per dollar of output. And that's why we need policies that can get ahead of the economic shifts to come and recognize that our generation is not going to be able to count, as our parents' generation often did, on the idea of a single relationship with a single employer or a couple employers across the course of your entire career. My dude, you just restated the problem. You didn't give a solution. You heard what he said at the end there. He's like, well, well, we, we need to understand that our generation is different than the older generation. We're not going to rely on in a relationship with a single employer. We're you know, basically saying you're going to be jumping from job to job to job, and eh, that's just how it is. Your job is to give the solutions to the problems. Your job is to not restate the problem. He said at one point, we have to come up with policies to get ahead of what's happening. Right. So now here's your opportunity to explain what those policies are that would get us ahead of what's coming and what's happening right now. One point, he literally gave an example of basically saying, hey, China invested uh, in us in the industrial Midwest. Is that a long-term solution? China invested? Bro, that was the, honestly, if you go back and listen to it, he's a long-winded, he talks for a, a really long time there. He doesn't say anything. All he does is like restate the problem. That's it. 
He says, uh, we need to find a way to make sure that trade works for us. Right. Now, how? Tell me how you would do that. And he says, we need adjustment assistance, and we need, the, I don't know, is he talking about, I'm not sure what that means. Does that mean for Social Security, we um, change the, the cost of living adjustments? I don't know what that means. And then he says, make whole the people who are worse off. I don't know what that, what does that mean? How? How are you going to make whole the people that are worse off? And have China invest in us? That was an abysmal answer. But the reason why it's an answer that many centrists will like is he just sounds like a smart guy in the process of saying nothing. He sounds intelligent. Hey, I'm going to restate the problem in this very long-winded way. Well, congratulations, Pete Buttigieg. That, does, that doesn't help anybody. Now, how could he have answered the question? There are so many answers to this question, it's insane. I mean, you could go, you could go the standard route and say, Hey, NAFTA was a disaster. We're going to renegotiate NAFTA. Trump did that, but the deal is just too similar to the original NAFTA, so it's still shitty. Um, you know, he can pledge no more shitty trade deals. And by the way, we're going to go back and we're going to look at our relationship with China through permanent normal trade relation with China. We're going to look at the World Trade Organization. We're going to change a bunch of stuff at the World Trade Organization. Um, you know, we're going to reevaluate CAFTA. We're going to basically renegotiate all of our shitty trade deals and pledge to not do any more trade deals that would have a, a net loss of American jobs. That's one answer. That's the basic, that's like starter level shit right there. You know, that's basic. Now, if you want to get more specific and graduate a little bit from that, you can uh, say what Bernie said in his most recent ad, where he says, um, do you really want to fight for workers in the middle of the country? Very simple. Say, all government contracts will be canceled to your company if you are outsourcing U.S. jobs. You know how much that would help? <laughs> you know how quickly GM would turn on a dime to say, whoa, 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 we need that $400 million, dog. We need that $400 million. So, yeah, no, we're good. Uh, did we say we're shutting down Lordstown, bro? We love Lordstown, bro. We're going to Lordstown forever, bro. That's an answer right there. The other thing you could do, you could couple that back to back with the Buy America policy. So in other words, what you say is, I will cancel government contracts if you outsource jobs. But also on top of that, if you don't outsource jobs and you're an American uh, company and you hire X number of workers, whatever that may be, we're going to sign uh, the Buy American executive order. Which, and what that means is, right now, the federal government says, all the products we buy for the federal government must be American. But there's a loophole, and the loophole is that includes us and all of our allies. So in other words, you could, uh, you know, the, the American government can buy Israeli products, and it still counts as buying American. All you have to do is sign an executive order that says, no, when I say buy American, I mean buy American. Not our allies, just American. So that immediately would help our econo economy massively. The government is giant, and they, they purchase so many goods, and they need to purchase so many goods. Why not have it? be bought from American companies with American workers. This is common sense stuff, man. And this is, like, if Pete were to say this shit, then he's getting on the record for a very clear policy that would help people, but he's not doing it. Why? He either doesn't know about these policies, which is possible, but I tend to doubt it, or he knows about it. He doesn't care to do these policies. He wants to be purposefully vague so that if he gets elected, he doesn't have to do shit that helps workers, and he gets to say, oh, what do you mean? I never said I was going to do that. This is, this is neoliberal, centrist, technocratic bullshit 101. Um, another thing he, you know, he could have said is, I will find outsourcers. That works. 
even Andrew Yang has a great you know policy on this front. That's the whole point of UBI. He says, in his words, he says it takes the edge off of the giant uh, transformation that's happening in our economy, where you know, hey, if you get a thousand dollars a month and you happen to be laid off, at least you're gonna you know be able to look for your next job and be able to pay the bills and eat something in the process. You and your family could do that. Um, and another, uh, Sherrod Brown has another great proposal on this front. Why not give people the option of tax credits for U.S.-made products? If you give people tax credits for U.S.-made products, they're more likely to buy the U.S.-made products because they'll be significantly cheaper. So, I mean, they're, dude, they're, I could literally sit here for an hour and uh, ring off policy after policy after policy about things he could have said for that question. Hey, what do we do to help the industrial Midwest, which is crumbling? Here's another one, a new New Deal. Why not have a giant infrastructure bill, which builds high-speed rail, for example, all across this country. There's an awesome jobs program that gets us off of, um, you know, dirty energy and moves us towards green and renewable technology. Um, there's, there's so much that can be done, but he doesn't give a good answer. He gives a really shitty answer where he says nothing but talks a lot. So, and listen, this is the point, man. For us younger lefties, what Pete just did there is inexcusable. That's inexcusable. You, no, you don't get to do the bullshit 1990s thing where you say nothing but you talk a lot and everybody's like, oh, he's so smart. I'm going to vote for him. No. We want details, bitch. We want to know the specifics, dog. If you don't have the specifics, done. 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 Go. Leave. Bye-bye. Not interested even in the slightest. So, um, empty suit, man. <laughs> and by the way, Final point, but how jealous is Bet on my stork right now? Because Booty Judge came in there and just fucking all the wind right out of, of Bet on my stork sales and goes to to Booty Judge because he's doing Beto shtick. Like I'm gonna talk a lot and flail my arms, but I'm really not gonna say much. And Booty Judge is like, oh, I'm not gonna say much too, but I'm just not gonna flail my arms. Checkmate. <laughs> Well, uh, he's, he's winning in the polls among substanceless white dudes. That's the best thing I could say about Buttigieg. Oh, I fucked up, guys. I fucked up. I changed the graphic when I didn't need to change the graphic. All right, I got one more on Mayor Pete. He goes after um, America's dad, Bernie Sanders. We will talk about this. All right, here we go. So Mayor Pete keeps shoving his foot in his mouth. We have another example of it right here. Take a look. Booty Judge says he doubts Sanders can win general election. Wrong. So it's, I find this incredibly interesting that on the same day I saw this article, here's another article I saw. Look. Senator Bernie Sanders leads President Trump in hypothetical matchups in three states that were critical to the Republicans' victory in 2016, according to internal polling conducted by the Sanders team. 
The campaign released the data to reporters Monday, showing 52% of likely voters in Michigan inclined to back Sanders in the 2020 general election in comparison to 41% for Trump. Wow. The statistics were similar in Wisconsin, where 52% of voters said they would back Sanders, while 42% said they would cast their ballot for Trump. In Pennsylvania, 51% of likely voters said they would support Sanders, while 43% would vote for Trump. So basically, he's crushing in the important swing states. Now, this is where some um, rather uh, silly people chime in, and they go, well, how'd those polls work out in 2016? <laughs> yeah, except they weren't that far off, because Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by about $3 million, and the polls had her up, you know, what, 3% or so, plus or minus 2 percentage points? So the polls, in terms of the popular vote, were actually spot on. But the reason why Trump won is the way that his support was dispersed throughout the country, it was in the exact right spots where like that's those 70,000 votes in the Rust Belt got him over the edge. So he won the election. So it's not like that's not a good point when people say, what about those polls in 2016? Yeah, they weren't that far off. What was wrong was the pollsters who were incorrect in their predictions and Again, the crucial point is in those states where the votes mattered that much more because they were the important swing states, that's where Trump crushed. Now, with Bernie, not only is he leading in the national polls over Trump by like 10 points, 12 points when you look at the numbers, which is way more than Hillary was leading over Trump, way more, but also specifically in the swing states that matter the most, he's crushing him. This is exactly what I told you guys. This is exactly what I told you guys. The hard part for Bernie Sanders is the primary. That's the hard part. Because Bernie Sanders, the last time around, he got crushed in New York, he got crushed in California, and he didn't do well in the South. But he did well everywhere else. So Bernie Sanders does particularly well in the exact states that you need to win a general election. Those are the states he does incredibly well in. Now this time around, Listen, all you got to do is hang on in the South, pick off a few here or there, hang on in California. You know, it, he can win. Just the primary is the hard part. The general is easy peasy, dog. I'm telling you right now, Bernie Sanders will beat Donald Trump with over 300 electoral votes if, uh, you know, he makes it to the general election. I've been saying it like every show because it's true. So um, Buttigieg has no idea what he's talking about. He's just clueless. He, what he's trying to do is this is his shitty way. How can Buttigieg separate himself from, from um, Bernie? Well, he can't outdo him on policy. Bernie's like a policy god. He's you know, fighting for all the issues that the American people care deeply about, and he's been fighting for them his whole life, and he's ruthless on that front. So Buttigieg can't out-policy Bernie, so what do you do? You've got to find a shortcut. So what shortcut do you come up with? Um, uh, I'm better for against Trump than he is. That's not true. Yeah, but it's all you got, because you can't beat him on policy. So I just come up with some bullshit rationalization. Yeah, man, if he goes against Trump, then it won't do as well as me, because the American people, and this is what he said in a clip we covered recently, the American people don't like angry liberals, is what he said. He meant leftists for Bernie. They don't like it when you're angry. Um, actually, the year is 2019. If Donald Trump proved anything, a little anger is not a liability. So it's not, again, I know you're stuck in 1992, my dog, but it, it's, 
you're stuck in 1992. Your philosophy of like, I'm going to talk like the fake announcer guy and say nothing as I'm long-winded, it ain't going to fly. So even though, you know what Buttigieg's other strategy is? And this one is working. It's, I'm going to pull an Obama and just suck up to the media all day. And what happens if you suck up to the media all day? They give you fawning praise. You want to know why? Because they're humans. And they're not that bright. So, like, mainstream media, you think they, they have any prayer of being objective when certain politicians are nice to them and other ones are not? Donald Trump all day, fake news, fake news, fuck these guys. And, and they're like, all right, well, fuck him. We're just going to write negative articles about him 24-7. Buttigieg is fucking stroking their egos. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're so important. Oh, the media. Oh, you're so good at your job. You never fucked up and got us into countless offensive wars or anything like that or, you know, told everybody Wall Street's line when you need to tell them Main Street's line. You're so great. So he sucks up to the media, and then all you see, nonstop, fawning coverage of Judge. I saw a, ty- a headline. I think it was, might have been The Hill. It was like, Judge surges in poll, or something like that. You click the link, Bernie's leading by a lot. <laughs> it's like Bernie, Biden, and then Judge. But they, the headline was like, Judge surges. Surges to third. I think that context is kind of important. Don't you? I can't, man. He, it, that's his clever strategy. I'm going to suck up to the media. But again, we might be in an era where mainstream media is so hated that if mainstream media is on your side, it hurts you. <laughs> if mainstream media is against you, it might help you. That's certainly part of the dynamic we saw with Trump. So we'll see what happens moving forward. But Mayor Pete is now taking some low blows on Bernie because he's got nowhere else to go. All right, let's go to bed on my stork. So it looks like bet on my stork is done with the fake progressive tap dance that he was doing. Um, Shane Goldmacher says the following. Take a look. New, Beto O'Rourke will be holding private big money fundraisers. His campaign has not previously held any. Hosts are asked to raise... Hosts are asked to, I think I'm supposed to say raise, $25,000 for a New York City event next month on May 13th. $25,000. So if you think, well, whatever, this is a one-off, no big deal. No, no, no. We also learned this week that um, he named Jen O'Malley Dillon as his campaign manager. You know who that is? That's a veteran of Barack Obama's campaign. Furthermore, the architects of his previous campaign, who were Bernie Sanders people, so Bernie Sanders people, Becky Bond and Zach Mallets, they're now leaving the campaign. It's unclear whether they were fired or if they quit because they don't agree with the direction that Beto's turning. But bottom line is, he ain't doing what he did in his campaign against Ted Cruz. One of the, one of the uh, most important cornerstones of that campaign that made it have relative success, he almost knocked off Cruz in Texas, um, was he harped away on grassroots, grassroots, don't take corporate PAC money, grassroots, grassroots, and that helps. That's a a message that resonates. Well, now he's doing big money fundraisers. The Bernie people are gone. He brought in Obama people instead. And then also, 
Beto, Kamala, and Booker all went back on the no lobbyist money pledge that they took. So this is, okay, you need to watch these people like a hawk because here's what they're going to do, find loopholes. So, and we were kind of naive too, myself included, I'll, I'll admit it. Early on, we thought like, okay, no, no corporate PAC money is a panacea. Is that the right word? I think it's the right word. It's like that's where it's at. Like if you get the politicians to take no corporate PAC money, they're not corrupt anymore. Well, no. They'd have to stop taking corporate PAC money, and they stop, they'd have to stop doing um, big money bundling dinners, which is not corporate PAC money, but it's still a very clear form of corruption where you meet in a room with a bunch of fucking bigwig executives and you raise a lot of money from them like one night at a time. So really, the only answer or the best answer to assure that your politicians are not corrupt, small dollar donors. That's the best case scenario. But even that has some flaws in it because it's so hard to keep up if you only take small donor money. Because the people who get, take big money, they just have a giant built-in advantage over you. Um, but also, even somebody like Bernie, it's not like all of Bernie, Bernie's money comes from small-dollar donors, although a lot of it does. Bernie does take some PAC money. It just happens to be, you know, PACs that aren't as nefarious, like union PACs, which are much less nefarious than, you know, corporate PACs. So it's tough. Like, campaign finance, to navigate it is tough because... We have to figure out, well, what's the purest way for these politicians to not be corrupt, but also how do they not fall too far behind? And also the ultimate goal, let's face it, is to get private money out of politics and do public financing, which is called clean elections by law. That's the only way to really fix this. Until then, we're basically just doing substitutes for, you know, hey, in our already corrupt system, the best you could do is mostly raise small dollar money, small donor money. So my general rule is, you know they're a, a relatively okay candidate if like over 50% of their money comes from small dollar donations. And hopefully, you know, they limit the, the big donor money. But under law, big donor money is $200 and above. So that's even a little misleading because Bernie's taken, you know, plenty of $300 donations, $1,000 donations, but it just happens to be from regular people, not from executives at companies. So it's complex, man. There's a lot that goes into this. But here's what's not complex. If you're doing big money dinners, as Beto now is, if you go back on the no lobbyist money pledge, which Beto now is, if you fire your Bernie people or they quit and then you go towards Obama people, you're saying, "Mm, I cannot compete Bernie style. I cannot do it. I can only compete if I take the big money. So that's what he's doing. He's taking the big money. I guarantee you the policy positions follow suit. I mean, he's already relatively centrist, um, but the policy positions will follow suit and he'll try to find that lane and that path. And word is Joe Biden's announcing this week, could even be today. And, uh, of course, he's going to try to take that centrist path, too, and he's going to tank in the polls as well. So I'm not, honestly, I'm, and maybe I'll eat my words on this. I tend to not think I will, but I, Beto, Biden, I'm not really that concerned about them. Even Booty Judge, who's made a charge, I'm not really that concerned with him. I think the last centrist standing uh, challenging Bernie will be Kamala. That's what I think. But that is just a guess. It's a little too early to tell on that front. The only thing we know for sure is Bernie is the strong front runner. Okay, let me do one more, then we'll take our final break. 
So we have a terrible new milestone that we hit in one of our forever wars. Take a look at this. Afghan civilians are for the first time being killed in greater numbers by U.S. and pro-government forces than by the Taliban and other insurgent groups, a U.N. report released Wednesday revealed. The bloody milestone comes as the U.S. steps up its air campaign in Afghanistan while pushing for a peace deal with the Taliban, who now control or influence more parts of the country than at any time since they were ousted in 2001. During the first three months of 2019, international and pro-government forces were responsible for the deaths of 305 civilians, whereas insurgent groups killed 227 people, the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan said in a quarterly report. The majority of the deaths resulted from U.S. airstrikes or from search operations on the ground, primarily conducted by U.S.-backed Afghan forces, some of which UNAMA said appear to act with impunity. Okay, so it's an amazing fact that the Taliban now holds more uh, territory and influence and control than they did at any time since 2001. So we've been there all this time since 2001, which means what? The war is 18 years old? The war can vote. It's, we've been there that long, and the Taliban controls more than they did since 01, which means we're going backwards. We're going backwards. Which opens up the door to some theories that are not too palatable about how perhaps the main reason we're there is not necessarily why they tell us we're there. Perhaps there happens to be trillions of dollars in mineral wealth that's in Afghanistan, and we like to get our hands on that and keep our hands on that. But anyway, I digress. Um, we are now killing more civilians than the fucking Taliban is. And listen, a lot of this probably has to do with Donald Trump changed. I know he changed it in Somalia. I don't know the specifics for Afghanistan, but it looks like this is the reality by these numbers. Changed the rules of engagement. Because, you know, he loves to say, we don't fight politically incorrect wars. So what that means is, hey, you don't have to be defensive. If you see people who you think the enemy are, fire on them. It's fine. We got your back. I mean, he also recently said about Border Patrol, like, I'll pardon you if you do fucked up shit to immigrants. Oh, God. So this is the same kind of shit. Because like, I don't care about the fallout. I don't care about the civilian casualties. Well, congratulations. Now, we are killing more innocent civilians than the fucking Taliban. How long ago was it that there was a, you know, it was the U.S. and Afghan forces that bombed a hospital in Afghanistan? We bombed a hospital and killed civilians. And then in the next breath, we turn around and go, well, we can't leave Afghanistan because we have to protect the civilians. You just killed a bunch of them in a hospital. <laughs> Who's going to protect them from you? So listen, it's, uh, it's, so, it's too much. We got to get out, man. The Taliban is not a direct threat against us. They're not going to attack us. They're a guerrilla army. Okay? The problem originally was that, oh, they're, um, you know, housing and protecting Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11, so we got to go after them. Well, mission accomplished. There's next to no Al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan right now. So what are you going to do? Are you just going to permanently stay there? The answer is pretty much, yeah, that's what they want to do. Because they'd rather waste U.S. military lives, kill innocent civilians in Afghanistan, and blow trillions of dollars in the process because, again, maybe it goes back to the mineral wealth, but I think the line that we can definitely draw is it's very profitable for the military-industrial complex and the, the, you know, the companies that make the goods, make the weapons, and make all the stuff that's been used in Afghanistan. A lot of people make a lot of money, and a lot of jobs are tied to our, our permanent 
forever wars. So that's, you know, one of the reasons why they just say, fuck it, let's just stay there. And by the way, shame on the media. Why? Because the media almost never talks about this, man. You can, you can be an American citizen and watch two hours of news every day. And over the past three months, you still might have no idea that we're uh, involved militarily in at least eight different countries, and we're still officially at war in two separate countries. You have no idea, because the media doesn't talk about it. So it, it's embarrassing, and it's terrible, and it's a waste of money, a waste of lives, and there's no recourse. And it's just, we need to get back to a time when the default position was we only use our military unilaterally and offensively for defense of the country. It's one thing if there's a genocide somewhere and the international community all wants to stop it together. I get that. But if we're doing unilateral attacks, it better be for defense of our country. And right now, it's obvious that's not the case in Afghanistan. Nobody can even tell you what victory means in Iraq and Afghanistan. Ask yourself if that's okay. If you're comfortable with that, we're bombing these countries, we're killing civilians, and nobody can even tell you what the definition of victory is. That says quite a lot, doesn't it? Okay. All right, let's take our final break. When we come back, we got... Um, Fox Business sputters out trying to argue against left-wing policies and uh, we have a clip from Bernie in 1991 an evangelical Christian asshole Franklin Graham goes after Booty Judge simply because he's gay so stay right there we'll have a million things uh, to talk about we will be right back We had a disconnection there, bitches. No bueno. Uh, I hope the show didn't get erased in terms of the audio. That would really piss me off, and I think that's what happened. So now I'm in a pissy mood, but nonetheless, I will trudge forward and finish the show and then figure out what the deal is after the show. Um, Anyway... So check out this story from Splinter News. The Trump administration considered sending migrant children to Guantanamo Bay. Now, thankfully, this didn't end up happening. Um, The New York Times originally reported this. And um, it was they were in talks with, you know, the official government agencies about this. But it fell through. Um, it's unclear why it fell through and why they didn't do it. But I need you to reflect on the fact that this was actually floated in the White House in high-level meetings. And remember, when we're talking about these migrant kids, 
This is, I mean, these are people who, through no fault of their own, like some people would argue, oh, their parents broke the law, so they got whatever's coming to them. These kids didn't do shit. Your parents just, you know, take you and make you do stuff when you're younger and you don't have a say in it. And imagine ending up in Guantanamo Bay because your parents want to create a better life for you. It's, it, it's hard to wrap your mind around, but it goes to show you this is like the classic textbook definition of authoritarianism. That's what we're seeing here. There's no other way to describe this. They do not believe in civil liberties. They do not believe in the Constitution. And, keep it real, there's a strong level of dehumanization that goes along with believing something like this. You, you, this isn't just something you casually believe. You have to basically believe these people are less than human in order to do something like this to them. And Guantanamo Bay shouldn't even be open in the first place because, of course, we captured people who were innocent and brought them there and tortured them there. And um, there's no due process. There's no habeas corpus. There's no human rights. There's no civil rights. I mean, it is, it's, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. So um, in the year's 2019, and we're hang, having a conversation about the reality star president sending people to Guantanamo Bay, and they are migrant children. That's what he wanted to do. And this goes hand in hand with the story that we just touched on, which is Trump also told um, Border Patrol, yeah, do whatever you want, and, like, I'll defend you, I'll pardon you, talking to the head of Border Patrol. Like, use whatever tactics you want, and I got your back. I mean, this is, I hesitate to ever make the extreme comparisons here, but you're getting goddamn close to Gestapo territory. I don't know how else you can characterize this. So um, now you know a horrendous circumstance, and the Trump administration almost did the most unconscionable thing you can imagine. All right, now we go to Fox Business. So Fox Business is going to sputter out here when they try to grapple with the fact that Bernie's platform is actually really popular. Listen to this. All right, well, Republicans might be feeling pretty confident, but they might want to read the results of this latest Fox News poll that shows Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is more popular than the Republicans' tax reform plan than those tax cuts. Uh, Medicare free for all, free college, more favorable than a border wall. That's early on here. But should Republicans be paying more attention than they apparently are for Ted Cruz's campaign bolster, Chris Wilson, on all of that? What do you think of all this, Chris? Well, I, I think if you put Santa, if you pulled Santa Claus's program to give away free gifts at Christmas, it would also test very well. But the problem is you can only give away so many things for free before you're going to bankrupt the entire company. And so as you look at things like free Medicare for all, which is, look, Medicare is a popular program. So you will hear, that, oh, it's going to be free. It's going to go to everybody. What could go wrong with that? Or if you gave free ice cream to everybody, that would also test very, very well, Neil. But the bottom line is these things cost money. And if you're going to pay for free college tuition, that means you're going to be paying for middle and upper middle class Americans to go to college for free, paid for by working class families. 
And the fact is, as these programs are peeled back and the American people learn more about them as we go through the campaign season, I think you're going to find these kind of numbers dissipate very quickly, and you're going to have real choices between actual policies that cost money and the American people will understand what they cost, and ones that were going to impact the economy positively versus those that impact it negatively. And we'll see a more legitimate, sort of honest debate about these issues than maybe you're getting in the way that they're being presented to the American people right now. I just get a sense, because I could be wrong, that Republicans are underestimating this. Yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> so Neil Cavuto is right about that. You know, I find it genuinely amazing that, like, the response from so many Republicans is what this guest said here. And that has never been convincing to anybody. And, you know, one of the main reasons is we spend an insane amount of money on our bloated, insane military budget. I mean, it's crazy how much we spend on the military. It's crazy how much money we give away in corporate welfare. It's crazy how big the Wall Street bailouts were. It's crazy how big Donald Trump's tax bill was and how much he gave away gave away so much money to ultra-wealthy families and corporations and the 1%. So you can't, like, this, this game does not work. After a while, people catch on. Even if it's just a little bit, once they get a whiff of your bullshit, there's no turning back. And oftentimes what happens is, like, the Republicans just recently passed that uh, tax cut bill, which gave over a trillion dollars in tax cuts to the rich and blew a big hole in the deficit. And then they turned around in the next week and said, Wow, we really got to cut entitlements, don't we? I mean, look at this fucking deficit. What? Look at what you just did. Are you kidding me? So these arguments, since they don't work, you repeating them over and over is not going to help you because Bernie's going to be there to combat it, and all of us are here to combat it now. We're all here to say, well, hold on now. You say how are we going to pay for it. We have the answers. You just don't like the answers. You don't want to address the reality. So how do we pay for Medicare for all? Well, first of all, you save money. You save $5 trillion. Our system... If we just kept it over the next 10 years, do you have any idea? It would, it would cost $37 trillion. So you say it costs $32 trillion now, that's, uh, or you, it would cost $32 trillion with Medicare for All. That's a net positive, dipshit. How do you not realize that? How do you not know that? Um, and the list goes on and on with all the policies that they laid out there. The idea that we can't do free college. In order to do free college, all you needed was less than the amount of money that was just the annual increase in the military budget. So not the whole military budget, just the amount of money that they increase the military budget. You don't even need all of that to do free college for everybody. And also it pays off in the long run because it's a net benefit. It's a net positive where, um, you know, the results of people being educated means they get better jobs, better pay. And then, you know, you more than pay for what it would cost to do free college. So this argument is not going to work. And they just keep saying it. And it's embarrassing. And you got to understand, guys, even Republicans, 51% of Republicans support Medicare for all. You need better scare tactics. These aren't going to work, especially when every other developed country has these policies and they're proven to work. You need better, you know, counter arguments than, oh, what does it cost? So checking in on what's happening with our foreign policy, take a look at this. Josh Rogan from the Washington Post says, exclusive, no more waivers. The United States will try to force Iranian oil exports to zero. All right, so 
this is another way of trying to do a coup. That's what this is. No if, ends, or buts about it. That is absolutely, positively, 100% what this is. If you force Iranian oil exports to zero, their economy implodes. When their economy totally implodes, the government implodes. When the government implodes, there's instability, there's violence on the streets, there's an attempt at a coup or regime change, a takeover. Who knows who's going to fill the vacuum? Who knows who's going to take over? And um, it's a way to bring about instability in a region of the world where this is one country that's relatively stable compared to everybody surrounding this country. And by the way, Iran has consistently been fighting ISIS and al-Qaeda, and um, the U.S. is still trying to undermine the government. Now, that doesn't mean the Iranian government is good. They're not. They're a theocracy, and they're a dictatorship, and they're terrible. But this is the U.S. trying to force from outside regime change so that we can get our business interests in there and we can, you know, it's the, tip, it's the old story that we've seen a million times over, which is the United States, for cynical, selfish reasons, you know, doing what we're doing here, for imperialistic reasons, doing what we're doing here. So now you know the goal is not a military toppling of the Iranian government, but the goal is, the goal is try to do a coup from within, try to collapse the country from within, and the entire time Pompeo and Trump will be on the outside like, us? What? We didn't do anything. I don't know what you mean. We care about the Iranian people. Oh, you do? You care about the Iranian people? Lift the sanctions. The sanctions are hurting regular Iranian people. People have died from lack of medicine because of the sanctions. So you want to lift the sanctions? Of course not. So they're fucking frauds, man, and they don't care about the humanitarian toll because all they care about is U.S. interests. Okay, next. So evangelical Christian asshole Franklin Graham went on Facebook to rail against Mayor Pete for being gay. This is weird. Take a look at this. He says, presidential candidate and South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg is right. God doesn't have a political party, but God does have commandments, laws, and standards he gives us to live by. God is God. Thank you, Franklin. He doesn't change. His word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mayor Buttigieg says he is a gay Christian, and he wants to unite people behind him. I'm sure there will be many people who will want to follow, but as a Christian, I believe what, a, what the Bible says. God's word defines homosexuality as sin, something to be repentant of, not something to be flaunted, praised, or politicized. The Bible defines marriage as between a man and a woman, not two men, not two women. Mayor Buttigieg also says that to him the core of faith is regard for one another. We are, all, we are definitely to support and help each other, no question. But that does not come above believing and being obedient to what God says is truth. Without that foundation, we really can't help anyone in a way that impacts their eternity. The core of the, Jewish, the, excuse me, the, core of the Christian faith is to believe and follow Jesus Christ, who God sent to be the Savior of the world, to save us from sin, to save us from hell, to save us from eternal damnation. Dude, it's not 1957 you can wrap it up. So understand that um, what he's doing here is he's trying to be a literalist and he's saying, hey man, Old Testament is against homosexuality, so yeah, you should be against homosexuality too. Except what he's not telling you is that um, Franklin Graham, for example, is against helping poor people when the Bible is for helping poor people. He's for war when the Bible is against war. Jesus in the New Testament in most of his moods is against war. Uh, the Bible is for helping immigrants. He's against immigrants. 
Uh, he says the Bible's for one man, one woman marriage. The Bible has um, a one man marrying multiple women. The Bible has a father having sex with his daughters. So does that mean we should do it? There's castration in the Bible. Should we all chop off our, our kibbles and bits? I don't think so. So he's selective in his approach to this, and it's based more on his Republican ideology than anything else. And that's the most important point here. He's going after Buttigieg, but really he could turn that scope in on himself because 90% of what this guy believes is against like the basic plain face reading of his own religion. All right, now final story of the day. I know I cruised through this last segment here, but I've come to the realization that since uh, there was a technological failure here, and I'm literally going to have to redo the show for YouTube. So that's why I'm kind of cruising here in this last segment, and that's a goddamn shame. Um, but you got to do what you got to do, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, here we go. One of the reasons we all love Bernie Sanders is his consistency over the years. So let's go to the old uh, C-SPAN vault here and take a look at an interview with Bernie in 1991. Not your first try uh, to come to Washington. You're here now, 1991. What, what do you hope to accomplish? Well, I'll tell you, Susan. Uh, there are, we could spend six hours talking about all of the problems that exist in this country. I mean, the, the crisis in health care, the fact that we have 15% of our population without any health insurance, the collapse of our educational system, uh, the fact that we are spending $300 billion on the military despite the fact that the Cold War is over, the growing gap between the rich and the poor. I can go on and on. The fact that much of America is owned and controlled by relatively few people. But I'll tell you honestly what I think the most important problem is and where I want to play at least some role. And that is that the average American, to a significant degree, is giving up on government. Uh, to me, the major crisis that we face is that in this last election, as you know, about 60% of the people who were given the choice of the Democratic and Republican parties in Congress didn't vote at all. You know, all of us are dismayed that in South Africa, for example, black people can't vote. How many of us know that in this country, poor people don't vote anymore? The last election, presidential election in 1988, you had 50% of the people not choosing to vote for the caucus or Bush. Uh, you have a situation in this era of anti-incumbency, throw the bums out. 96% of these guys got reelected. So the basic issue is how do you reinvigorate democracy? How to make the average working person, the elderly person, the poor person say, you know what, this is my government. Those people in Washington listen to me. They are representing my interest, and they're not just standing with the rich and the powerful against me. Now, how do you do that? That has to do with the media, who owns and controls the media. It has to do with the two-party system. It has to do with campaign financing and the fact that many of the, can many of the candidates are heavily indebted to wealthy people and corporations who buy them, who buy uh, politicians, who buy elections. So how we can begin the serious discussion, the national debate that we need, which says, where do we want to go as a country? Who has the power in this country? How do we democratize all of our institutions? How do we give working people power over their own lives? You know, we freed the slaves a long, long time ago, but in many respects, in many respects and I don't need to be rhetorical about it, the average working person today has very little rights. Corporations go out to work, it comes to work on a, on a Friday, and the corporation says, oh, by the way, we're moving to Mexico. You worked for our company 30 years, here's a few bucks. You have no power to say it. You don't have any power over your job. So I think the major challenge we, we, we face is not only a redistribution of wealth, which is important, but a 
redistribution of power, making the average American feel, this is my country, this is a democracy. I can shape the future. The people don't feel that now. They sit down, they watch the tube for 40 or 50 hours a week, they hold their nose, they vote for the lesser of two evils. Now that, that to me is the, is the major problem. And once we can begin to deal with that, with that problem, I think other things will follow. And that is why we all love Bernie. He's been saying these things forever, and he's been fighting on these fronts forever, man. He really has. Um, He was known as the Amendment King throughout his career because he always found a way to work with both Democrats and Republicans in some instances to put amendments in bills that reflect his values and our values. And we know he's going to fight and he's going to fight tooth and nail so that if it's at all possible to get the reforms that we want and need in place, he's our best chance of getting it. He's FDR 2.0, man. That's what he is. It's remarkable to see that video and to see how consistent he's been and to see how, uh, you know, it's the same issues that keep uh, coming up. And it's not that just that he's a broken record. It's that the system is broken, so he has to keep pointing it out in the same way over and over. So that's why we all love him, and um, yeah. Bernie 2020, baby, let's do the damn thing. All right, that is the end of the show, kind of. Um, the end of the Blog Talk Radio show. There will now be another show, because I'm an idiot, and I had a technological problem. Love you guys, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Peace. <laughs>